0: This is Pushing Boundaries Together, a podcast where we speak with leading scientists and engineers about their amazing applications that are pushing their fields forward to modern frontiers. For 50 years, PI has aimed to explore technology and science's most grueling challenges and have provided refined motion solutions that push the boundaries of astronomy, advanced manufacturing, and medicine. I'm Dave Rigo, president of PIUSA and host of Pushing Boundaries Together. This episode features Jörg Beversdorf, and I had an amazing opportunity to interview him about his research on super-resolution microscopy.
1: My name is Jörg Beversdorf. I grew up in Germany. And I got my physics degree in Germany, working with Stefan Hell, one of the pioneers in super resolution microscopy. And yeah, I came over to the United States now 16 years ago. First working at the Jackson Laboratory in Maine and for the last 12 years here at Yale University. I initially wanted to do cosmology stuff, essentially Einstein worked on, and that was an idol of many high school physics nerds. But then I think I realized in my studies at university that what really motivates me is to do things which people outside my discipline find useful i as a physicist can research in the larger biomedical arena with my skill set and that is fascinating to me making other fields research possible i really Enjoy that.
0: We invited Jorg because in his research there are a lot of considerations with respect to positioning and imaging technologies. When you deal with particularly high resolution microscopes, the wavelength of light itself influences the image resolution. This is certainly something that needs to be accounted for in super resolution microscopy, and Jorg explains this during his interview.
1: Super resolution microscopy is, is really a kind of an overarching term for essentially any light microscopy techniques that achieve a resolution which is better than that of a classical light microscope. You cannot focus light to something smaller than about half the wavelength of of light. So anything which goes beyond that is called in the community a super resolution microscope. There are two classes of these techniques. First, they are the ones which I would say, push the diffraction limit to its highest level. And by doing that, you can squeeze out another factor of two or so in resolution with these techniques. And then there are the techniques which break the diffraction limit, which really completely overcome this diffraction limit border by taking advantage of a unique property of fluorescent molecules. And that is that you can turn them on and off. You can make fluorescent molecules not fluorescent. And that actually gives you a a powerful tool or puts a powerful tool into your hands that you can selectively turn some molecules on while you turn other molecules off. And if these molecules are very close together, you can separate these two molecules from each other despite them being closer together than the diffraction limit allows. So instead of essentially separating molecules in space, which in this case won't be possible because they're too close together, you separate them in time by first looking at one and then the other molecule, and you do that by turning them on and off sequentially essentially.
0: High-resolution microscopes bring about different obstacles in addition to diffraction limits. You may be able to guess some of them intuitively, but others are surprising. In fact, while running experiments, These super-resolution microscopes require so much environmental control that even coughing or speaking lightly at the wrong time can interfere with the results. Jörg will explain more.
1: The first fundamental physical limit we have to overcome is the diffraction limit, right? So 250 nanometers or so is what you can achieve best with a conventional microscope. With these super-resolution microscopes, uh, we can get down to about roughly effect of 10 better, let's say 25 nanometers in resolution. And if you really push it, you can get it even down into a single nanometer range. But if you are at this 25 nanometer instead of 250 nanometer level, then yes. you actually have to think about things you normally don't even think about. For example, any kind of drift of vibrations that your system has will suddenly become more visible, right? If your microscope has 250 nanometer resolution and something moves by 50 nanometers, then what's the big deal? You probably will not even be able to tell that. But if your resolution is 25 nanometers and then something drifts by double that resolution, That actually will create quite a smearing artifact. If the object moves over the course of recording, then everything will be spread sideways by that 50 nanometers. So it will really uh, look ugly and in in the worst case, even be interpreted wrongly as an artifact, right? So you might actually draw conclusions that your objects actually look like that. When in fact, what happened was just that the sample moved drift can be caused by many different phenomena. Like, for example, if the room temperature changes, things will expand and things of different materials will expand differently. So suddenly everything is in motion and will slowly move your sample or your objective relative to your sample. And then you have vibrations, right? So any vibration in your floor, if somebody walks by your microscope, by your image, can make your whole microscope jitter around or vibrate. Or if somebody speaks too loudly, the the sound waves might actually interact with your microscope and make the microscope vibrate. This is something which PI, of course, is aware of and knows a lot about. And that's what we use these actuators for to correct to a large extent when you look at smaller and smaller things. We are talking about fluorescent molecules here because we image fluorescently labeled samples. And these fluorescent molecules themselves are a few nanometers in size. So suddenly, the probe size matters. How you labeled your sample is not negligible anymore. You actually need to take into account that if you look closer and closer, you can actually start to resolve individual molecules. And something which originally looked like a smooth or continuously labeled surface actually now You can resolve the individual molecules on that surface, and it doesn't appear like a surface anymore. It appears like scattered little dots, right? And then you need to actually start connecting these dots. You need to take into account that the actual label might be separated by 10 nanometers or 20 nanometers, even from the site it's bound to, et cetera. So we need to take into account that we are actually approaching the molecular size scale of our sample. From a physics perspective, I think we can drive this down to the Amstrom level. The practical limit from a biological perspective is that we now need to really account for probe size, the fact that the probe is shifted by a certain number of nanometers from what you actually labeled with that probe. And and you, you always need to remind yourself you're just imaging a proxy of what you're actually interested in. You're normally not interested in the probe, you're interested in what the probe is attached to. I think we have reached the level of what makes sense to resolve there. The ultimate limit, I think, that we have reached with fluorescence labeling is that we typically label each protein we are interested in with only one probe molecule. So you end up with one dot. With a better and better resolution microscope, you will not suddenly see the substructure of the protein. So that is the ultimate limit we are currently dealing with. And then that stands in, in contrast to a modern electron microscopy technique, for example, the cryo electron microscopy, which is really very popular and a big, quickly advancing field right now, where people look at individual proteins and actually resolve the, the internal structure through essentially scattering electrons at the sample.
0: While there are more precise imaging technologies available, namely electron microscopes, super resolution microscopes capture a more complete image of complex structures. Jörg explained to us how the highest resolution image isn't always a complete picture. His primary technique involves marking and illuminating the substructure of cells that he's interested in. This allows the structure to be imaged in three dimensions instead of only two, as is the case with traditional imaging techniques.
1: So, a single mammalian cell, for example, a human cell, is of the order of 10 or tens of micrometers diameter, then you have individual organelles in that cell, for example, mitochondria, and they will have a diameter of about 250 nanometers, quarter of a micrometer. And that actually matches quite well to the diffraction limit I mentioned earlier of about 250 nanometers. And then if you go to smaller size scales within the mitochondria, for example, you have Membrane folds which are called CRISTAe. And these CRISTAe are about thirty nanometers or so in, in diameter. And and then below that scale you have the size scale of single proteins. And single proteins are really the, the nanomachines which drive a cell. These individual proteins are of the order of two to five nanometers or so typically. They are, they're much longer ones, uh, and there are probably a few smaller ones, but like a, a single-digit nanometer scale is that size scale of a single protein. And that protein will then consist of several hundred amino acids, which are here forming together a long chain and are folded up into a protein. With the conventional light microscope, we achieve about 250 nanometer resolution, so about the size scale of a mitochondrion. With the super-resolution microscopes, we can get typically down, let's say, to the size scale of these cristae, which about... 30 nanometer resolution. And with electron microscopes, we can get down to a single nanometer or even sub-nanometer resolution, for example, with a cryo- Electron microscopy, the single particle averaging techniques, beats the super resolution microscopes. However, the electron microscope has one big disadvantage, that you lack the specificity of your contrast. You see everything. You see all the proteins in your sample, for example, or you see all the lipids in your sample. And you need to interpret from the knowledge you have about the sample. If this is a purified sample of just individual proteins on some kind of a slide, of course, what you're looking at are these proteins, so it's easy to interpret. If you look at a a cell, then this becomes much harder. So in light microscopy, you can take advantage of fluorescent tags, and that allows you to pick out what you really are interested in. For example, a protein on the outer membrane of mitochondria, and you just label that particular protein. And if you now take an image of the cell, you will see an Outline of the mitochondria. So you're not seeing all the other organelles in the cell. You only will see mitochondria outline. And if you're now interested in studying how mitochondria move or how long they are, how they are oriented in relationship to each other, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, then this is a very powerful technique because it really puts a spotlight at what you care about. You can then take advantage of multiple colors. You you label maybe mitochondria in one color and the endoplasmic reticulum in another one or a bacterium in the cells in another color, and you can see how the mitochondria and the bacterium interact. And then another huge advantage of the fluorescence microscopy techniques is that if you're interested in seeing how cells behave, and you not just want to see a snapshot of a particular sample, then you can image them alive. You see how they Change with with fluorescence light microscope. And this can also be done with the super-resolution light microscopes I was describing earlier. Electron microscopy gives you the higher resolution black and white image of your whole sample. The super-resolution light microscope gives you a multicolor image, often in 3D, which is not as detailed as the electron microscope, but uh, you can see the specific interactions that you're interested in.
0: Jörg described the pioneers of his field in biophysics and bioengineering who made groundbreaking discoveries with what we would now consider to be imprecise and perhaps even archaic imaging technologies. He's proud to be researching using new high-performance techniques, knowing that the tools he develops now will be a catalyst for future breakthroughs.
1: I find it completely fascinating how simple tools which were available at that time, how scientists could actually draw any conclusions, how chromosomes were identified before any of these specific stainings were really developed. And that at the same time, biology in particular has made so many steps in just a few decades. It's really hard to imagine. It's incredible how, how much uh, progress has been made in such a short time and what we can now do.
0: Although Jörg is engaged mostly in high-level research at an esteemed university like Yale, I thought to ask him anyway if he had any expectations for his research impacting
1: the consumer market. I struggle with the term consumer market. We are not thinking in terms of consumers, but let me explain a little bit how our research then impacts society. We are building microscopes, which are then used by our biological researcher colleagues for biomedical research. They use these microscopes to discover new processes in biological cells. Uh, they, they understand better how a healthy cell looks and how it works. And they understand better how a sick cell looks and what's going wrong and why it's sick by looking at it with our super-resolution microscopes. And that is what then leads to a more targeted uh, drug discovery process. Uh, you can then use that essentially in the biotech and pharma industry to really steer your applied research and lead to better drugs. And if you think of the consumer becoming sick and at some point needing a kind of medicine to treat ourselves, I think that's how our basic research in making microscopes see better is really having a long-term impact on society. In a way, it's not that different from astronomy building strong and stronger telescopes which allow you to see further and further or get a view of a black hole in unprecedented detail and, and thereby you learn more about the black hole. Here we are just going the other way around and we are looking at smaller and smaller structures. Biophysics
0: and biomedical engineering are unavoidably interdisciplinary and globally collaborative. This was made very clear by Jorg as he described the research community that he's involved in every day. It includes experts from the optics community, chemistry, biology, physics, and precision positioning, each containing talented experts facing unique challenges that require teamwork, patience, and an open mind to new approaches.
1: I would say the community of Super Resolution microscopy Labs is probably about 100 labs or a few thousand researchers, there are more and more Chinese labs working in this area, Japanese labs, Australian labs, they're all over the world. There's a certain competitiveness, everyone wants to build the the greatest and best microscope and uh, develops better and better algorithms, better probes and all that. But at the same time, it's also a highly interdisciplinary field. To really push the field of super-resolution microscopy, you need to push on the physics and instrumentation side. We need microscopes which move more and more precisely, which have uh, very precise actuators, are very stable, have great optics, etc. But at the same time, we need to develop these new fluorescent probes, and uh, they are coming out of the molecular biology lab or the chemistry lab. We need to rely a lot on sophisticated computer algorithms to analyze our data, and we even need a little bit of electronics to make all this work. So it's really biology, physics, chemistry, computer science, electric engineering, everything coming together here. No lab is an expert in all of these techniques. So we rely on each other also as collaborators and work together. Somebody develops a new probe, the next person develops a new algorithm, the third, a new microscope. And it's still a fairly young field, which really took off about 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm.
0: The newest challenge York has had to overcome is how to automate his setup. He has been able to scale his research up from several dozen images to many thousands per day allowing future discoveries to develop much faster. Jörg explains some of the major issues he's had to overcome on the road to automating his imaging technique.
1: We are at an exciting stage in the field right now where there has been a lot of pioneering work over the last few decades, pushing the envelope further and further, showing what is doable. And I think what we now are focusing more and more as a field is higher throughput, higher efficiency, higher reliability with these techniques so that we can actually image many samples with these techniques, right? You have a very powerful microscope, but if it's extremely hard for people to learn how to use it, then it's not used as much as if this is actually automated. And just to give you one example, a classical super-resolution microscope is capable of imaging 10, 20, 30, If you push it, 30 cells a day of somebody really sitting there the whole workday in front of the microscope and going from one cell to the next and then analyzing it all by hand later, we have now built a microscope which automatically images 10,000 cells in 24 hours. It goes very quickly from cell to cell, and then we take a high-speed image of each cell before we move on. So this just gives you an idea of kind of another envelope we are pushing there. And that is that of throughput. It's a huge difference from a biological perspective, whether you image a few tens or 10,000 cells gives you much higher statistical significance and much higher reliability of your results. Another thing which we are pushing, which also I think is exciting, we are going from imaging single cells to imaging cells in the tissue context. Traditionally, a lot of Microscopy is done on isolated individual cells but we need to acknowledge that cells in the human body are usually not by themselves in an isolated manner but they are actually growing in tissue they are connected to neighboring cells they communicate with each other and uh, I think that's uh, we are building now these super resolution microscopes which really allow us to look at cells in the tissue context and this is challenging from a microscopy perspective because imaging through tissue can be hard. The tissue is non-transparent. As we all know, you you cannot see through your hand. And so you need to develop techniques how you can go deeper into a tissue sample and, and still be able to get not only an image, but a super resolution image at a certain depth in the sample. And uh, adaptive optics is, for example, a, an approach that we are applying there where we essentially correct for distortions to the light waves that the sample introduces through flexible mirrors, which you can deform to correct for these distortions, and that's uh, there's another interesting parallel to astronomy because that's where uh, kind of adaptive optics first was introduced to correct for distortions that the atmosphere introduces. I think that's two fields which I think uh, we'll see a lot of advances in the next uh, few years. With these
0: problems solved, biomedical researchers will have access to more accurate information on processes that would otherwise be invisible to traditional imaging techniques. We are lucky to have people like Jorg pushing the boundaries of nanoscopy and super-resolution imaging.
1: Yeah, so super-resolution microscopes are, in, in our community at least, far-field microscopes. So we deal with the problem that we need to focus light and that is limited by diffraction. The near field microscope overcomes the diffraction limit by staying in the near field. So for example, you have a fiber tip and you just image objects immediately in front of your fiber tip. And then it's a single mode optical fiber, which limits the resolution. We need to overcome the diffraction limit by other means because our focus is millimeter uh, or centimeter away from, from our objectives or our lenses. The advantage of our approach, but I'm obviously biased here is that we can look into tissue. We are not limited to surfaces, right? If the focus is uh, a millimeter away from the lens, that means we can actually, theoretically, at least go a millimeter deep into an object, into a sample. The practice is not a millimeter, but at least a few tens of microns. We can image throughout the whole volume of a cell easily. A near-field optical microscope will be uh, limited to imaging the surface of the cell.
0: On behalf of Pi USA, I'd like to thank Jörg Beversdorf for taking the time to talk to me about his fascinating work with super-resolution microscopy at Yale University. Thank you for listening to Pushing Boundaries Together. This podcast is brought to you thanks to PI Physique Instrumenta, a global designer and manufacturer of nanometer precision motion systems, performance automation products, and piezo technology solutions at Pi. Our goal is to push the boundaries together with scientists and engineers to help realize their missions with the precision required for greatness. Visit pi-usa.us for more information.